Hey everybody, I'm Amanda, and welcome to another episode of New York's Dark Side. gonna admit I had to finish up the Central Park saga before moving on. I know I said the last episode that it just felt really unfinished so here we are. Welcome to part four of the history of Central Park. The last episode went over the design and the opening of the park as well as some of the early regulations and we're just gonna kind of pick up from there and take this park to the like mid late 20th century. We're not going to make it all the way to 2023. I just couldn't do it. The park, even though it was under the guise of being the park for all the people, open to the public, for everyone to use, where we left off, it was really still the wealthy elite people's park. We talked about some of the ways that the elite and the park managers had tried to restrict access to the working class people, including the bans on vehicles allowed to the park, restrictions on what could and couldn't be done, you know, keeping off the grass and all that other stuff. And then we kind of got into the press coverage, expressing the dangers of the park to unaccompanied women. Today, we're gonna start out by talking about some of the private ventures that the wealthy elite wanted to open in the park for themselves. So we're going back in time to 1859 when a man named August Belmont persuaded the park commissioners to look into zoological and botanical gardens that were being operated in England and other European countries. August Belmont, he was a prominent banker who had moved to New York City from Germany. He started his own banking house when he arrived in basically started out with no capital and ended up building one of the largest banking houses in the country. He would end up introducing thoroughbred horse racing to America and would be the longtime president of the American Jockey Club. Belmont ended up on the park board and after he brought, you know, wanting to open a zoological and botanical garden to the board, they would end up putting in their annual report that year that a zoo was going to be placed in the park and would be run by a private group that was going to pay rent and charge admission fees. Belmont, along with several of the city's wealthiest gentlemen, including Frederick Law Olmsted, one of the designers of the park, organized the American Zoological and Botanical Society, and they began to plan the zoo. A few months later, the state legislature would authorize the parks board to set aside 60 acres in Central Park for a zoological and botanical garden to be run by this new society. No other American cities at this point had a zoo in them. So this one was going to be the first. The society wanted the park to be open every day except for Sundays, which would, you guessed it, keep the poor and the working class out of their zoo. They didn't want them there. The plans for the zoo would stall, however, with the start of the Civil War, and then would stall for several more years as the park officials began to argue about the location and the organization and who was gonna manage the zoo. While all of this was going on, 
The public had actually already been donating live animals to the park for quite some time. These animals included several deer, a goose, an alligator, a peacock, a porcupine, a pelican, a prairie wolf, a silver gray fox, and a boa constrictor. And these donations were, they were pets of some children that had passed away and had come into them by other means. In 1863, more animal donations would come in. General William T. Sherman would end up donating three African Cape buffaloes that he just happened to pick up in Georgia. At that time, there really wasn't any specific enclosures or anything for the animals being donated to the park. So the board had set up some wire enclosed spaces for the animal. The Cape buffaloes, they just tied them to a willow tree when it was warm out and would put them in the arsenal when it wasn't. The park commissioners would end up putting up some more permanent enclosures at the arsenal to help keep the animals. And the menagerie of animals that they had continued to grow in popularity, and it really peaked in 1880 when a chimpanzee was brought to the monkey house. This was the first chimpanzee in the United States. Even then, President Ulysses S. Grant came to see the chimp. He brought dozens of photographers and artists. The chimpanzee was given the name, it was a very controversial name, of Mike Crowley. And this was controversial because... There was speculation this name was given to him as an insult to the Irish and the Irish-American organizations. There were protest delegations coming to the Parks Department over the name. A lot of the names given to the animals in the menagerie at that time were Irish names, which really fueled this concern that it was being done in a derogatory manner. Mr. Crowley, however, was such a popular feature in the park, though, that when he got sick, the park had to publish daily reports on how he was doing, and these would be printed in the papers. People were writing letters to the zoo, offering their sympathy, and they would suggest remedy ideas for him. There were faith healers coming in to pray for him. Prohibitionists were coming out and protesting at the zoo because there was a concern that they were giving ardent spirits as a possible cure for him. After Mr. Crowley recovered from his illness, an author, Henry S. Fuller, wrote a biography of Mr. Crowley, detailed his life and his times. Fun fact, you can read the biography. I found it on Google, and you can purchase a copy of it on Amazon for $18. So if you want to purchase a biography of the first chimpanzee in America, there you go. I'll link both in the sources for this podcast. I did uh, do a little search on the interweb, and I found a fun little rabbit hole to go down. So here we go. In a December 1st, 1884 issue of the Democrat and Chronicle, I found an article about an escaped boa constrictor from the Central Park Menagerie. The article states that three boa constrictors had been donated to the park and they were the largest of their kind ever received in this country. Two of them were a whopping 20 feet long and the third one was an amazing, astounding 25 feet long. And they were being kept in padded boxes in the boiler room of the arsenal. The park superintendent, Mr. Conklin, had taken a worker of the menagerie 
down to see the largest of the boa constrictors, and he shut the box after looking at him. But later, an engineer who was in charge of the furnaces would go down to the boiler room to tend to the furnaces, and he found that the box was open and the snake was gone. They instantly set up a search. They couldn't find the snake in the room. They suspected that it had gotten into a space between some large pipes leading to the offices. So they began carefully tearing up the flooring to search for the snake in were trying not to injure it, but they couldn't find it. So they set up workers all around the arsenal buildings. They locked all the doors and they were going to stand guard all over the building all night. Many of the guards were armed with clubs, which I found very ironic since they were trying not to injure the snake. I guess if I was being faced with a 25 foot snake in the middle of the night, I'd probably at least want a club at the very least. I would actually probably be more comfortable with a flamethrower. I've never used one, so I probably would be more of a danger to myself than the snake, but I would feel pretty badass holding a flamethrower until I needed to actually use it. Then I might be a little scared. But anyway, Mr. Crowley, the famous chimpanzee, was a mess, and he was pacing around his cage which was in Superintendent Conklin's office. They set a night watchman in there, Tom Donahue, to guard Mr. Crowley from the monster snake. The city was terrorized for the night, concerned that the snake had escaped the arsenal and was potentially roaming the city, waiting to take them all away. The truth of the matter was, there was an escape boa constrictor at the arsenal, but it was far from 25 feet long. It was only six feet long and it had been brought over from Africa and was on loan from the owners to the director of the menagerie. The boa was being kept in the boiler room, which was true, in a potato sack, and it had a sore in its mouth, which Superintendent Conklin was treating with alum water. Conklin had treated the boa, and it suspected that either the knot he used on the bag failed or that the snake's tail had been left outside of the knot, and this contributed to the snake escaping from the bag. The rumor of the snake being larger than truth is alleged in this article to be started by Mike Crowley, the chimpanzee. I'm not kidding. The snake was found in the hall about 60 feet from where he was being kept. The reporter interviews Superintendent Conklin about it and states that when he was leaving, Mr. Crowley, the chimpanzee, was laughing and rolling around in his cage, holding a newspaper with an article about the escaped snake in it. Now, this wasn't actually the first time widespread panic spread through the city with concern of escaped animals being at the center of a hoax. Ten years previously, on November 9th, 1874, the New York Herald released an article stating that over 200 animals had escaped from the zoo and brutalized and killed hundreds of people and that the reporter writing the article had witnessed it all. The article alleged that during another Sunday of horror, because remember, they're really hating on the Sundays when the regular folk are at the park. A great calamity occurred when a zookeeper, Chris Anderson, poked his cane through the cage bars of one of his charges, Pete the Rhinoceros. Pete was apparently poked in the eye during this interaction, which led him to break out of his cage, and his keeper, Chris, was trampled beyond recognition being the first victim of this great calamity. Pete then began to break out other animals in the zoo, the lions, the tigers, panthers, leopards, wolves, wild swine, who then began to fight each other over the remains of Chris Anderson, the zookeeper. 
The reporter alleges to have watched this from a window in the arsenal, and then Lincoln, one of the lions who had been watching all the other animals fighting, made eye contact with him and burst through the window after him. The lion killed a couple of unlucky bystanders and then stopped chasing him. Another zookeeper attempted to shoot the lion, but while it did hit him, it wasn't a fatal blow. The reporter started running again. The lion was chasing him. It was right on his heels. And then it leapt past him into a crowd of fainting women, screaming children, and terrified men. It painted this glorious picture of what was going on. And no one is really able to stop the chaos. The article goes on in great detail of how various people were brutalized and killed by the different animals. Sometimes the animals seem to be working together. Sometimes they're fighting each other and they're slaughtering citizens all along the way. The avenue is paved in blood. Pete the rhino falls into a sewer. There's lions in a church. It's a complete mess. The article is just bananas. It was front page. It covered six columns. It went so far to give a list of casualties. It listed the animals that were allegedly slaughtered as well. It gave a list of animals that were still unaccounted for and on the loose. It gave statements of precautions from the National Guard and the police that citizens should take to protect themselves. And then at the very end of the article, it admitted that it was all a hoax, stating, Of course, the entire story given above is pure fabrication. Not one word of it is true. Not a single act or incident described has taken place. It is a huge hoax, a wild romance, or whatever other epithet of untrustworthiness our readers may choose to apply to it. It is simply a fancy picture of what which crowded upon the mind of a writer a few days ago when he was gazing through the iron bars of the cages of the wild animals in the menagerie at Central Park. The article succeeded in causing widespread panic throughout the city. Men armed themselves, prepared to defend their families from attack. The police units mobilized. Women and children barricaded themselves within their homes. Even the war correspondent from the Herald, apparently not in the loop with this hoax, showed up at Central Park with two large Navy revolvers ready to take on the rampaging animals. An editor, Thomas Connery from the Herald, would end up taking ownership for the idea of the hoax, stating that the idea had come to him when he was at the Central Park Menagerie and witnessed the near escape of a leopard as it was being moved. He claimed the owner of the Herald had nothing to do with the story, but most people didn't believe that to be true. The article itself was authored by Joseph Clark, and it's going to be linked in the sources for this episode if you want to read it, and you should. Again, it's bananas. It's just crazy. Now, before I move on from this rabbit hole, I found one other piece of history that related to this story. This hoax article run by the New York Herald is one of two events that led to the elephant becoming the symbol of the Republican Party. The Herald had been running articles that Ulysses S. Grant may be trying for a third term as president. This concern was taken up by the Democratic politicians and helped disaffect Republican voters just before the midterm elections. After the hoax article ran in the Herald, a cartoonist, Thomas Nast, put together a cartoon for Harper's Weekly connecting the two events. His cartoon depicted a jackass meant to symbolize the Herald wearing a lion's skin meant to symbolize Caesarism. 
Scaring animals away in a forest was, was meant to symbolize Central Park. One of the animals running away was an elephant, which he labeled as the Republican vote, running away from its usual ties, scared by the prospect of Caesarism. The caption on the cartoon read, quote, an ass having to put on a lion's skin roamed about the forest and amused himself by frightening all the foolish animals he met with his wanderings. Later that month, after the election and the poor outcome for the Republicans, Nass would run another cartoon with the elephant in a trap, symbolizing the Republican vote being decoyed away from its normal allegiance. Other cartoonists would begin to follow suit with the symbolism, and the elephant eventually symbolized the Republican Party, not just the vote. The donkey would become the symbol of the Democratic Party, instead of the Herald, because it was the Democratic Party that had frightened away the Republicans. So there you go. Now you can think about how the, a fake news story from New York helped inspire what would become the symbols for the two major political parties in the United States. You're welcome. Okay, back to the zoo. The wealthy people on Fifth Avenue wanted the zoo moved because they were offended by both the smell of the animals and the demeanor of the crowds of people observing the animals. The people on the west side didn't want the zoo to move over in their direction for the same reason. Other people were also upset about the menagerie because they thought it took away from the stature and the refinement of the city and the park. An article in The Post in 1883 complained that the menagerie, quote, has long disgraced the city and the park with its mangy and uncultivated beasts. The way it was written made it Really unclear if it was directed at the animals or the people visiting the animals. I'm going to go with both. Just given the time frame and what we've already learned about, you know, this whole thing. Andrew Green, he was the park commissioner and the wealthy elite still wanted for a private zoological park outside of Central Park. And they would get state approval in 1895 for a new zoo in the Bronx. There was thought that the outdoor animals from Central Park would move to the Bronx Zoo, but there was so much support from other political party members as well as the people of New York themselves that the bill for the Bronx Zoo needed to be altered to protect the Central Park Menagerie. So the Central Park Menagerie would remain. There were two other institutions that would be developed in Central Park that did end up being privately owned institutions. Those are the American Museum of Natural History and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The museums, of course, were closed on Sunday and protests would begin regarding this even before they opened. The museums would open in 1887, closed, of course, on Sunday. The boards for both museums were filled with Presbyterian leaders, and it would take five years and push from many labor organizations and petitions for the Metropolitan Museum of Art to open on Sundays. And another year after that for the Museum of Natural History to do the same. And when I first started writing this episode, I didn't realize I was going to spend so much time on the zoo. So I'm really not going to go more into the museums. The public having more access and stay in the museums, though, as time would go on, would lead to more opportunity to have say in other aspects of the park, and that's what we're gonna talk about. By the 1900s, the public and recreational reformers started to have a focus more on the children and the benefits they were not getting from the park. They had no playgrounds. They were starting to see the benefit of play as an essential part of human development, the playground movement was warning that 
Quote, the boy without play is the father to the man without a job, end quote. The playground movement would really have an impact on Central Park, but it would take a long time. It wasn't even until the the mid-1920s. And at this point, only about 9% of the park was devoted to play fields or other programmed events. Heckscher Playground on 61st and 7th Avenue was added in 1926 as the sole equipped playground with the park. And it was apparently very bitterly opposed by many of the real estate and civic groups at the time. Interestingly, the League of Women Voters and the Federation of Women's Clubs were opposed to the building of a playground in Central Park. Like, why, ladies? Why? Don't you want your kids to go play? The playground was named for philanthropist August Heckscher, who gifted the playground, which took up 4.5 acres and included swings, merry-go-rounds, spiral slides, jungle gyms, a field house, and a wading pool. The location had been designated as a playground in the Greensward plan and had been used for a long time as a play area for the children anyway. When studying the children that were making use of this park's playground, they found that most of the children making use of the equipment were from less affluent neighborhoods than the wealthy homes that surrounded the park. 90% of the children were coming from more than a quarter of a mile away, and they found that more residents of a single block of working class people in Yorkville, which was three quarters of a mile away from the park, were using the playground than the residents of the wealthy eastern perimeter of the park. So while there was some class segregation at the playground, there was, for the time, a very notable degree of racial integration, which was awesome. The children of San Juan Hill, a largely black and poor district in the West 60s streets, were making very heavy use of the park and the playground. On November 1st, 1941, a tragic crime would take place in Central Park when 12-year-old Jerome Dore, a young person of color from Harlem, fatally stabbed the white 15-year-old James O'Connell on the edge of Central Park at 99th and 5th Avenue. The papers would paint a very controversial and revealing picture of the incident and the way different groups of New Yorkers would end up interpreting it. The Daily News said that O'Connell was walking home with his brother from confession at St. Cecilia's Church when they were accosted by three colored boys who chased them and then stabbed James to get what few pennies he had on him. The tabloids would assign broad social and racial implications for the event. The newspapers would quickly take up the cry of a crime wave being instigated by Puerto Rican and black New Yorkers at the border of the north end of the park. Some of the stories running stated things like, quote, police act to end terror in Central Park. There were reports of, quote, roving bands of knife carrying colored youths and terrorism of rape, robbery and murder in the park. Even the New York Times was running headlines such as, quote, crime outbreak in Harlem, youths running wild, and boy hoodlums called the chief offenders in wave of terror, especially in parks. Two major African-American newspapers raised the concern that the city's, quote, mighty and influential white press was using the event to slander and attack Harlem, creating an exaggeration on the crime levels in Harlem and the park. Most of the crimes, actually, in the late 19th century into the early 20th centuries involved violations of park ordinances, not violent crime. 
These were things like picking flowers, public intoxication, and littering. Murder in the park was so much more rare than other places in the city, and the rate of felony-level crimes was also much lower in the park compared to the city. But many people believed the contrary. The reason for this was because people heard about crime in the park far more consistently than they did crime in other areas of the city in the newspapers, on the radio, and on television. There was some reasoning behind this. There were three commercial television networks that had their national headquarters a short distance away from Central Park. They could just walk there, which led to the increase in publicity of crimes in Central Park. In the 1960s, Johnny Carson would frequently make jokes about crime in Central Park. His studio was also a short distance from Central Park. There were also celebrity crime victims, which got a lot of publicity. John F. Kennedy Jr., the son of the former president John F. Kennedy, at age 13, was robbed while riding his bike in Central Park on his way to a tennis lesson. The assailant took his bike and his tennis racket, and the story made the New York Times. Dick Button, a figure skating champion, was one of several men assaulted in Central Park by a group of men armed with bats and suffered a serious head injury. There were also United Nations delegates from Nepal, Cyprus, France, and the Soviet Union that were victims of crime in Central Park, and they all made big headlines. Victims of crime in Central Park tended to be more newsworthy since they were more likely to be of the similar background to the people that were reporting on them. They tended to be white and middle class. This was not anything unique to Central Park. We hear this echoed across the true crime genre even now, but Two of the most publicized cases of Central Park crime, the 1986 murder of Jennifer Levin by Robert Chambers Jr., that was labeled as the preppy murder by the press, and in 1899, the rape and near-fatal beating of the 28-year-old investment banker referred to as the Central Park jogger. They're two examples of class and racial bias in crime coverage from Central Park. And actually, in 1984, two homeless women had been viciously gang-raped in Central Park and only got minimal passing press attention. The racial biases in the newspapers started before World War II, as more people of color began to settle in the northern borders of the park. The Upper West Side, East Harlem, and Morningside Heights also started to transform as migrants in the thousands from the South and from Puerto Rico began to settle within them. Between 1950 and 1955, the Puerto Rican population doubled. And as this happened, just like in previous generations, some of the upper and middle class New Yorkers began to panic. The assumption among these groups was that the persons of color and the Puerto Ricans that lived among them were poor. However, many of them were residents of the Upper West Side and Harlem. They were doctors, they were lawyers, they were ministers, like they were not all poor. And it wasn't just class and racial and ethnic tension that was rising in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. There were other dangers being publicized after World War II, and those were of the gay community. Prior to the war, most gay New Yorkers tended to conceal their presence. However, afterwards, they were more open in the community. By the late 40s and early 50s, however, there was panic over sex crimes being committed that changed the stereotype of the gay community from ridicule to fear as they were being portrayed as dangerous psychopaths. The local and national press would label them as perverts and misfits. The truth was that members of the gay community were far more likely to be victims of crime in the park rather than the perpetrator. 
Many of them were preyed on at night as the thugs doing these crimes knew that they were frequently at the park after dark and were reluctant for public exposure that might come if they went to the police to report that they had been a victim of the crime. One television commentator, Barry Gray, would state in 1959 to his viewers, quote, Central Park is a happy hunting ground taken over by the dope happy hoodlum, the homosexual, the exhibitionist, the potential murderer. They're there all the time, on the benches, on the grass, lurking behind trees and bushes. The park is one great open-air cesspool, end quote. He made it just sound like a terrible place to go. However, as with most things, as time went on and New Yorkers from all classes and backgrounds learned to live with each other in public spaces, fear of crime in the park started to assuage. And even though, in truth, the crime rates were actually going up, They remained much lower than crime in the city, and people were less fearful, which is good. In 1956, the Battle of Central Park would take place when a crowd of mothers, children, and baby carriages would block a bulldozer on a grassy knoll from raising a play area. There was a small 0.4-acre play area that the park commissioner at the time, Robert Moses, wanted to turn into an 80-car parking lot for the Tavern on the Green restaurant. There was a fenced-in playground right next to the area that Green wanted to turn into the parking lot that was designated for children under eight. Mothers would lounge in the grassy knoll, watching their younger children play on the playground and their older children play in the grass. And this was their space. They loved this space. One mother would be quoted as saying, quote, you know, at that time in your life, your life centers around your children. We lived in that little spot in the park. We took our kids twice a day. That little spot in the park was really the center of our neighborhood. You know, in a city like New York, a little spot like that is really precious. The mothers learned of the plan to raise their space two days prior to the day they planned to take it over by accident. An engineer had left the blueprints for the parking lot on the ground when he went to lunch, and one of the mothers had come across it. They were instantly outraged and they started a petition to save their space. They rallied in front of the Tavern of the Green. Robert Moses, the park commissioner, promised to give them a reply to their petition. And his response was to send a bulldozer on Tuesday, April 17th, 1850 or 1956. I'm so lost. I'm still in the 1800s. We're in the 1900s now. Oh, God, I feel old. Okay. Newspapers would run photos of the mothers, children, and babies standing in front of the bulldozer the following day on April 18th. The mothers would successfully stave off the bulldozers a few more days, but on April 24th, Robert Moses got a little sneaky and sent a crew at 1.30 in the morning, surrounded the area with a snow fence, and bulldozed the grassy knoll. This sparked widespread outrage and drew spotlight to the clientele of the restaurant, which were those wealthy and elite citizens that could afford to eat there. They were coming in chauffeured Cadillacs. It was, you know, all the things that the poor working class couldn't have. They took their knoll and gave them a parking lot. Moses, he tried to defend his decision, even going to the New York Historical Society, remember them, to get insight on what Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vaux had to say about having restaurants in the park. A court battle would ensue, and Moses would end up surrendering and returning the grassy knoll to the mothers. 
This one decision would end up ruining his reputation. He would end up resigning his position in 1960, a year later, after a highly publicized defeat surrounding free Shakespeare in the park. This had been started back in 1957 by Joseph Papp, Moses' aide, Stuart Constable, had a deep dislike for Papp, which related to his more free political associations. Constable and Moses wanted Papp to reimburse the park for maintenance costs, but to do so, Papp would have to start charging admission to Shakespeare in the park. People love Shakespeare in the park. Negative publicity forced Moses to back down, and free Shakespeare in the park continued. The first oppositional political event held in the park would happen in 1966, when 10,000 people gathered in Central Park lawn to hear Reverend A.J. Moost, a pacifist leader, along with other speakers, rally in protests of the Vietnam War. The previous year, in 1965, the courts had upheld the park commissioner's right to deny permits for anti-war protesters, but the Parks Department ended up reversing that ruling to allow for this specific protest. And a big part of that was because the police had actually pushed really hard to help fuel that decision, wanting to avoid the massive traffic jams that had occurred with the previous denied rally, which ended up being held on 69th Street and just really screwed with the city's traffic. The anti-war movement was also really growing at this time, and the new park commissioner at this time Thomas P.F. Hoving would end up being a great reformer of the park. He would hold many public events in the park and was its greatest promoter. But this pissed some people off, including Henry Hope Reed, who he ended up appointing as park curator. Reed thought that Hoving was desecrating the park with his public events, and he went public with his concerns, which led to Hoving being replaced by August Heckscher. This August Heckscher was the grandson of the man with the same name who had donated the first playground to the park. He actually was even more committed than his park commissioner predecessor, with the park being more of a pleasure garden. Shortly after taking office, he would be approached by a group of flower children asking to have an Easter love-in in Sheep's Meadow, which he allowed. And This was a huge change from the previous decade when Robert Moses had been park commissioner. Then there had been restrictions on some of the clothing that people could wear. Like they couldn't wear public bathing suits. Women couldn't wear halter tops. They couldn't have shorts any shorter than mid thigh. Things had really changed over the previous decade. You know, now there were visitors that were completely naked sometimes in the park. There was free love. The Lovin' was aired on national TV, but it ended up being yanked off the air. And I did find clips of it on YouTube, which the one was pretty funny. And I will post that on my website. By the late 1960s and early 70s, regulations continued to ease up in the park under Heckscher's commission. Park officials encouraged things that had been previously forbidden. They invited acrobats and jugglers, musicians. Remember before, there was a period of time where you couldn't be a musician and play your instrument in the park. Now they were there. There were bike racers, marionette shows, arts and crafts. Heckscher, even legit, took an axe to the signs at the beaches that had the list of all the restricted activities and put up new signs that just said enjoy. And I'm not going to lie here, people. I'm so glad I decided to do this episode, even though when I ended the last one, I said I was moving away from Central Park. The last episode just really had me feeling that the coverage of the park was unfinished. 
And I know I haven't brought the park to 2023, but I feel like this is a much better transition point for this show than where I left it the last time. 1880s Central Park was still very restrictive and not at all a park for all the people. Heckscher brought the park out of that age. He would say that Robert Moses thought of the park as, quote, as a place to keep off the grass. And Reed thought that parks were, quote, places where history was enacted hundreds of years ago. But his own personal philosophy on parks were, quote, places for the people. And I agree with that. There's so much more that I could have covered in this episode or these last four episodes now. So again, if you're interested in doing a deep dive, check out the book, The Park and the People by Roy Roizenzweig and Elizabeth Blackmar. I'm linking that in the show notes. Again, that was the biggest source for the content of these episodes. And I'm going to link all of the resources I use in the show notes as well. I did just return my copy of The Park and the People to the library. So if you're in my community, it's back there now. You can get it. I'm not going to tell you where I am, but it's there. But I also wanted to stop getting naughty grams from them. So that should stop. And don't forget to follow the show for updates on when more episodes drop and that you can connect with me on Facebook at the New York's Dark Side Facebook page, on Twitter and Instagram at NYDarkSidePod. You can send me an email at NYDarkSidePodcast at gmail.com. And I hope you keep listening. And most of all, I hope you stay curious.